0: The way that your body and your nervous system are set up to take you from being active to being calm and doing things like digesting and absorbing your food and your nutrients is very elegant. It's very complex, but the bottom line is you can't have optimal digestion and absorption if you are also participating in what we might call the more active, stressful side of life. So, if your nervous system is focusing on, we all have lives and all sorts of things happen, or you're at work, or you're trying to eat while you're working and doing other things, your nervous system has to choose kind of one direction or the other. So, the part of your nervous system, parasympathetic part, that allows you maximum digestion and absorption of nutrients, you have to be somewhat calm. You have to be physically centered and calm, and you have to, at all possible costs, not be focusing mentally on many stressful events. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet.
1: Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi With today's discussion, we're going to explore two sides of the health equation. How can we set ourselves up best for long-term health? And ultimately, when we do confront challenges, whether they're personal challenges with our health or those of our family or close friends, how do we confront them? How do we surmount them? How do we ultimately navigate those murky waters that we might confront at some point, whether it be a broken leg or a long-term illness and even debilitating disease. To engage in this powerful discussion today, I'm honored to be joined again by Dr. Paul Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex infectious, chronic, and oncologic illnesses, cancers. In addition to his three decades of clinical experience, he served as head of the interventional arm of a US NIH-funded human research trial that used IV vitamin C and other therapies in cancer patients. He founded Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, a clinic that focuses on the care of patients with cancer and other chronic illnesses. He is the author of the Hay House book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, which I'm holding up for those of you who are watching on YouTube, as well as a co-author with Jack Canfield in the anthology, Success Breakthroughs. He's a frequent speaker and writer for the medical community and has his own podcast, Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul. With that particular podcast, he shares many episodes that are bite-sized, less than 15 minutes, making even the most complex science digestible for you and me. He's even done that with this latest book as well, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment, which is the book that we'll dive into a little bit today. As a reminder, before we get started today, this show is offered for educational and entertainment purposes only. Nothing shared today should be construed as medical advice. If you have a specific health concern, connect with your healthcare provider. Perhaps that could even be Dr. Anderson himself. Dr. A, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's lovely to have you back. When we last connected on this podcast, we dove into your expertise in post-infectious illnesses, beyond cancer, and including even COVID. But as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So today I'd like to focus that conversation on those two things. On one hand, let's discuss how we set ourselves up for a long, healthy life. And on the other, what do we do when we confront a real challenge? So How do we set ourselves up for success? What have you seen?
0: Well, you mentioned earlier the two cancer-oriented books, which really have a lot of crossover to a lot of other chronic illnesses. And something that I noticed after somewhere after 20 years of working with patients with cancer and complex chronic illness was I start to look backwards and say, is there anything in common with either people who maybe have a very short trip into the chronic illness world, so they do get sick like other folks, but they seem to come out of it better. Or people who need more intervention because they have a higher level illness, such as cancer and autoimmune disease, but they seem to do better than other people in their same disease state cohort. And what it turned out was, is that there were three real basic things that are what I consider the pillars of not only doing well in a chronic illness or debilitating illness, but also you could take this to before you're sick. (laughs) And that's really the best time to do things. Prevention is better than anything. And these pillars serve you well in the avoidance of disease. As you mentioned in the intro, disease happens to people. It's a natural course of being a human. And sometimes very bad diagnoses happen. But also a lot of people are certainly able to have prevention. So one of the things I thought we could do is we could sort of do bookends around these pillars and we could start there because it's a great place to start for prevention. And then we could kind of end there in regard to, well, what if I'm dealing with something chronic and long-term or very disturbing diagnosis like cancer? How do these apply to me then?
1: Thank you so much for that bookend perspective, because I think that fits really nicely. And One of the things that I loved when I first got your book in the mail, I was like, oh, Bruce Lipton wrote the foreword. And Bruce Lipton is someone who I followed for a long time. He wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. And that connects very nicely to kind of how you've constructed this book because you have two very different perspectives that are offered. A cancer patient who is diagnosed but moves into acceptance and a positive attitude almost out the gates. Whereas the other who happens to be an MD is basically fighting the diagnosis and a little bit of a grump about it and leaning into, I know what this means and this is dire and therefore what good can I really do about it type thing. And so there's resistance to even the possibility of emergence from cancer, resistance to having a positive attitude about their daily life from that point forward, and that therefore seems to affect their outcome along the way, not only in their daily enjoyment of life, but also perhaps in how they respond to treatment. So I think the bookends you've discussed kind of marry this all together, but I hoped that you'd also be able to share perspective from your time in practice. And if there is literature that says, okay, well, the placebo versus nocebo effect really does have some validity to it. And here's what we're finding. Or there's these nutrients that a lot of people are lacking that may lend them down this road where they're more likely to develop some of these diseases or have inflammatory concerns that become then chronic. So I guess that's my further commentary on the discussion.
0: Perfect. So I'll start with the bookend idea and we'll kind of develop that. But first off, you mentioned Dr. Bruce Lipton writing the foreword. That was an extreme gift to me. It was wonderful that he did that. And I think partly it was because our ideas, although coming from different points of view, really meshed well as far as his writing and my writing and our experience. So that was really wonderful. And it leads to one of the portions of these pillars I was going to talk about. But just to frame the bookends, let's start on the most positive side possible, <laughs> because talking about cancer and chronic illness can get a little heavy and thick and all of that. And it's certainly it's serious business. But most of us have a time in our life, hopefully, where we're not ill. And everybody, I don't know if people have heard this or not, but the way that illness works, whether it's cancer or immunologic problems or whatever, we all have things come up every day in our body that our immune system actually takes care of. And we never even know it was there. And that's how the immune system is supposed to work. And so prevention is the best medicine if you can do it. Now, if you've already got an illness, we'll talk about that in the other bookend. But On the preventive side, it turns out that these same big three pillars that sort of hold our health up apply whether you're trying to stay out of a disease state and stay as healthy as possible, or they apply even if you're very, very sick to getting the best outcome you possibly can have with your illness or maybe a recovery, remission, etc. So on the preventive side, the three pillars, kind of the way I look at them applying, I actually boiled these down, not so much for the public, but for medical students when I teach them, because they are so inundated with information that we try and break things into little pieces they can remember. So I literally have a graphic that's a foundation of three big blocks, and they're called food, muscle, and brain. And what that means, of course, they're deceptively small words for very, very big topics. But just to put a kind of a spin on it for the purposes of prevention, food not only includes, of of course, the calories and the fuel that we eat, but it includes the cleanliness of the food. Are we getting as clean a food as possible. We do not live in a clean world. There's lots of toxins, etc. Can't avoid them all, but we can minimize them. And food and drink are one of the biggest ways in for poisons into the human body. And if we look just at the effect of our food and the cleanliness or lack of cleanliness of the food that we take in and the liquids we take in, the toxins that we take in or minimize are huge epigenetic triggers, this is a big thing that Dr. Bruce Lipton talks about in his books, and an epigenetic trigger is we can have good or bad genes, but our epigenetics are what turn them on or off. So, for example, he and I use an example commonly because it's a common example. There are particular very bad cancer genes where maybe you have a 50, 55, maybe even 60% probability of having certain cancers if you have those genes. But the other side of the question is, well, what about the 40 or 45% of people who have the same genes and never get them? That's the effect of epigenetics, what turns things on or off. So one of the reasons I start with that with food, there's many other things with food we can talk about, but the less junk, the less toxicity we bring into our body through eating and drinking, the less epigenetic, I call it sort of banging on our genes, and we don't want to turn the bad genes on. So that's a big thing, the cleanliness of your food. Then there's, of course, the simple aspect of is the caloric amount that we're getting enough to run our body or is it too much? Then there are things like our macros, and those are sort of individual for people. Some people do better with more of a protein, fat, carbohydrate balance in one direction or another. But then there's also the timing of our eating and one of the things that we see in disease prevention, but also in survival of uh, some unfortunate things like cancer, et cetera, if we just simply don't eat for a while every day, I mean, nowadays we call it intermittent fasting, but just you know, don't eat for a while, it actually increases people's survival with even some very, very demanding diseases. So it's about the cleanliness. It's about the amount of fuel we're getting. It's about the macros. All of those things go into food, but then also there's our emotional relationship to food as well, which you know, comes up in another one of the pillars. Now, something that patients often ask, and this really fits in, especially on the preventive side, is, well, okay, so let's say I'm doing my very best. I'm eating as clean as I possibly can in this kind of world with lots of toxins. I'm getting good variety of food, etc. Do I really need to supplement the nutrition in my food? The short answer is yes. (laughs) But of course, you need less if you're getting more high-density nutrition in your foods. But here's what often we don't think about. You can look at, there's data that goes back now, I think, 100 years or more just in the U.S. And for example, my parents, they're both passed away, but they would be close to 100 years old now. When they were children, if they ate, broccoli, let's say, or asparagus or any other food, the amount of nutrients that that food would have for the same serving size as what I would eat today is very different. And it's not going in the better direction. The nutrients were higher back then. But what's the other side of it? The amount of toxic chemicals was minuscule. So human evolution over time takes a long time. The last hundred years, we've seen the additions of tens and tens of thousands of toxins, many of them in our food and water supply. So that's really an important thing as well. So that means I can look like I'm eating really well and maybe I'm doing the best I can, but the micronutrients that I need probably need to be supplemented in some way or another. And that could be vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, amino acids, things like that. So that's a big thing. Food means, you know, all of those things, including the cleanliness and when we don't eat. The middle one, I always think of, I call it muscle, but what it really is, is the balance in our physical activity between muscle activity and fat activity. And in maintaining health or prevention, it works the same way as it does in recovery from disease. It turns out, and there's even literally just two months ago publications expanding on the science of muscle activity... When your muscles work and you don't have to become a marathon runner or anything like that, you just have to use your physical body a little bit. You could be gardening, you could walk around your house or, you know, we have people who are recovering from surgery and an extra trip to the kitchen for them is their first step. So it's whatever you can do. But when your muscles work, they actually send chemical signals out to your body to repair things, even your muscle activity can repair neurological damage. So
1: this is the whole concept of your muscles as an organ themselves.
0: And they're a big metabolic organ, but their metabolism is in the direction of healing, which is the real cool thing. If you become very sedentary and the muscles are minimized, but there's a lot of fat content, fat metabolism is actually, it's the opposite. It's not healing, it's inflammatory, and it keeps you sick. So imagine on the preventive end, simply moving your body, like you could garden, you could walk around your house one more time every day. It doesn't matter where you start, just so you start. And the other real cool thing is you could be, maybe you've had a bad number of years, you've gained some weight, things just didn't go well and you can start where you're at. And if you simply just use your muscles a little bit more every week or two, it'll turn on the same healing uh, types of chemistry. So that's what I mean by muscle, is you don't have to become an iron man or woman. You, you can do it by just act a little bit more activity. And then brain really is, I break it down to two directions. One is a lot of what the latest book is about, which is the internal dialogue of, what am I saying to myself? about how I feel in the world and how I'm interacting. We all have stress. How am I interacting with that? All of those things. But then there's also the exterior world coming in. None of us live in a bubble. And there's nowadays, of course, many, many ways for messages to come in to our mind and our body and our heart and all that that may be good and healing or may be very, very unhealthy and so if we have this combination on the brain end of pillars where the talk i'm giving myself is not so positive not so healing not so focused etc and then the things i'm allowing to come in through my ears or the people i'm around or all of the above are also very negative we can actually work our body into an unempowered state which actually is associated with more illness. And even if you get medical attention, worse response to medical attention. So those things are universal in my experience. It can keep you from being sick. It can keep you from getting sick sooner than you need to. But also, other end of the spectrum, even with cancer patients, if those things are attended to, what we tend to see is all their therapies work better. They get more mileage out of their therapies, what a natural or standard of care or some mixture or whatever. And their quality of life is certainly better. And also there's research that shows that even things like pain management work better when you're empowered, right? So many, many things can be very positive with those, whether we're avoiding illness, being healthy and preventive, or whether we have something that's maybe not going to go away, but we want to live the best life we can with it. So I think those three areas, and of course, you could go deeper into many things in those areas, but I think those three areas, are that's the place I have people start to focus.
1: You know, I'd really like to dive in a little bit more into this whole concept of food and drink because you said something early in that discussion that really stuck out to me. You said that it was the primary way in which poisons make their ways into our body. And so while you did share I think, a clear understanding of how something like broccoli or spinach or whatever it is that we're consuming would have a different nutrient profile than it once did. And also said like, hey, we have more toxins in our environment. We also are consuming foods at an increasing rapidity that our grandparents or our parents really didn't eat. So what do you consider the poisons that we consume when you use that term?
0: So- I think that when we think about, and I actually prefer to use the word poison because people understand that word, toxins are included in poisons, but toxins can be something that we think is out there somewhere. And so you think of, well, you know, I don't live next to a coal smelting operation, or I don't walk around in town with lots of car exhaust or whatever. Certainly those are ways to get toxic. But what we sometimes miss, and you were alluding to this, is The poison that comes in through food can be on a bunch of levels. Some of it is as simple as eating too much of something I don't need is actually poisonous to me. It actually feeds some of that bad metabolism. But then the next level is literal toxic ingestion on the food. And as I mentioned, there are tens and tens and tens of thousands of chemicals that didn't exist 75 to 100 years ago. And many of them wind up on our food, even organic food. There's less on it, there's still. And that's because they're either applied to the foods as part of the propagation of the food, or they're in the air. And then they either come out of the air just through airborne activity or through the rain. It gets on our crops or gets on the stuff that the animal we eat eats. And so the toxins are not just pesticides and herbicides, which are horrible but they're everything else that's in the world. And as I said, there's no clean place in the world left. That ship has sailed. So we've got sort of the self-poisoning thing, and maybe I'm eating too many calories or too much of something I shouldn't eat, which could include allergens and sensitivities. Then we've got this layer of chemistry that might be directly applied to the food, or it might just be there incidentally because it's in that environment. None of those are good for us. And so literally, we eat somewhere between one and three or four times a day, usually. And every time that stuff goes in, it carries poison in. But then there's another layer, which you mentioned a little bit, things such as modern farming and propagation. There are grains, for example, that didn't exist 40, 50, 60 years ago. The grain products that I ate as a child, totally different than the ones we have now. The grain products that my parents ate as children, certainly unrecognizable now for the most part. So again, we look at, well, we kind of have this macro view of human nutrition. It's like, well, okay, humans have always eaten say corn or rice or wheat-based products or other grains. Yeah, but not that long ago, generation two or three, depending on your age, those food products were not even the same as they are now. We have things, there's certain chemical trade names I'm always careful about not saying, but we now have brains and we have other stuff that we grow that are propagated to be ready for certain types of pesticide or herbicide chemicals to be taken up into them. So it's like you can't separate that. So that's going into us. Well, then you think about, well, gosh, that's sort of a downer to think about, but it's a whole other layer of ways to poison a human And really what that gets to is you've got toxicity and poisoning has direct effects, like it messes with your enzymes and your hormones and all the stuff that makes us run correctly, but also maybe even more scary. It's that epigenetic signal we don't want from the toxin that can literally go in and a gene that might be a nasty gene, but it's quiet, can be turned on. And that's where some disease comes from. So it's complicated. There's no way to eliminate all of that. But also I think that a lot of times it's such a negative thing to think about because I just you know, went and told you the world's so toxic. You can get really defeated thinking about it. But there's many things you can do to minimize. Minimizing is the thing you want to go for there.
1: So I'll give a few examples for people just so that they can kind of center this concept into their thinking. You go to a grocery store and you look at apples. The conventional apples looks really bright and shiny, very shiny. And part of the reason they look so shiny is because they're actually coated in wax so that they look as bright and shiny as they do. That could gunk up your system. Shouldn't really be eaten. Don't need it, right? May be inert, but may also not be great for you. May also combine with the pesticides that are sprayed on it, make it harder to wash off, right? Whereas if you look at the organic apples, they don't tend to be that same kind of glassy finish for the most part. There are certain cultivars that tend to have that really glassy finish, but most of them don't. They look a little bit more like a Gala or a Braeburn, a little bit matte, maybe some luster to them, but not the same as the conventional stuff. So it's easy to choose that food and go to organic and have a little bit safer of an understanding that you're not going to get all this chemical soup that your body doesn't need. And To help people understand on the wheat issue, because so much of wheat is contaminated with some of these, well, they're ultimately pesticides that also make it easier to harvest. So those two things go together to make wheat farmers really want to use glyphosate. But ultimately, if you take somebody who's sensitive to wheat here, and they may not be gluten sensitive, it may just be the chemicals that are there because that person travels to Italy and finds suddenly, I have no issue eating pasta. I don't have any of the negative response to this food here? Well, it's grown differently there. The wheat is grown differently there. And so they don't get the same kind of infiltration of the chemicals into their food supply that they're actually sensitive to. So whoever's brainchild this was to breed crops that have an inborn chemical in them that that kills insects or that isn't what was why did we take this thinking and also why did we enter the world of fat soluble (laughs) chemicals like this as opposed or water soluble chemicals like this because it gets into the water table and then it's just there so yes we live in in some ways in a toxic world but we can do things to limit choosing organic where you can help but paying attention to what you're sensitive to also helps because if you're sensitive like me to broccoli, I eat broccoli and I have an inflammatory state occur. I can limit that by choosing not to consume products that contain broccoli, even in broth form, and I'll be healthier. I won't have kind of these negative responses. So that's where the personalized nutrition comes in, right? You have to listen to your body.
0: Very much. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting to with sort of the top layer is just your own personal poisons, if you will, because you can have people that have inflammatory responses to anything. Even if it might be great for you, it's not good for that person.
1: Mine are broccoli and quinoa, two things that all the health nuts go to, right? Like
0: It's supposed to be good for you, right?
1: It's supposed to be.
0: Mine are uh, coconut and avocado, the two favorites of everyone right now. But
1: Everyone in the fat world loves those two things.
0: Yeah, one of them actually will kill me.
1: Oh no, don't tell us which, leave it a mystery.
0: We have to be careful. So there's two connections, I think, that kind of came up our other bookend we were talking about, just as you were talking. One is certainly this level of personalized, both good nutrition, but also just foods we should avoid. And one of the connections there is, is that remember I was saying, so muscle activity generally anti-inflammatory and healing. Fat metabolism is Very pro-inflammatory and anti-healing. Well, it turns out that a lot of these foods that you have sensitivities to trigger the same inflammatory chemistry that the fat side has, which are not in line with healing. So huge thing there. And then the other thing kind of goes back to supplementation. And, you know, I mentioned we're just not getting the nutrients, even though we eat the same amount of calories of a food. But in addition to just replacing nutrients that are missing, one of the other things that's missed a lot of times, and a lot of doctors miss this too, just because it just doesn't seem like it should be this way, is your body is made to detoxify and get rid of a lot of junk. Now, it can't keep up with what's going on in our world right now but it's still made to get rid of a lot of stuff. But guess what those processes run on? They run on micronutrients and a number of things. And so if on one hand, we're getting less micronutrients and more toxicity, and then our poor detoxification systems are sitting there saying, well, I've got more work to do, but I need four times as much micronutrition as I would have 100 years ago to operate. It start, you you literally run out of gas in your detoxification, and your body pushes the toxins into fat cells, et cetera, et cetera. So another reason why supplementing is more than just the sort of the nutrition gap that we have in modern agriculture, et cetera, is our detoxification systems and many other systems in our body have to operate using more fuel than they would have 50 or 100 years ago. And so a lot of times, whether it's supplementing clean fatty acids or aminos or micronutrients of the mineral and vitamin kind, those are used faster in folk. That's something that does. It. we look the same as we did 100 years ago, but our body's demands are a lot higher. So I think that's another really important thing to remember.
1: That could also be part of why we burn through B vitamins really quickly, right? Like when we impact stress, these fat soluble vitamins are, we're living in pretty stressful times. Our alarms go off on our phones. We're getting disrupted all the time, traffic, whatever. And people balancing their lives between typically both partners working, raising children, confronting illnesses with aging parents, and you just start throwing all of these things into one. The stresses we confront are a lot. And so those water-soluble vitamins we burn through really quickly, and we're not necessarily, even when we supplement with them, getting them in the most bioavailable form, we may have inborn insufficiencies like this MTHFR issue in our genes, which impact our ability to absorb them from these more, just say, USP vitamin sources that are cheap and easy to take over the counter. So getting those nutrients from foods or from supplements that have the most bioavailable form is better, but often they cost a little bit more. Let's say it's diametrically opposed to your eating style or eating choices. If you're vegan, it's really hard to get enough vitamin B12 and other B vitamins as well. If you're vegan, it's also hard to get enough omega-3 because you're consuming no fish. And so you can go to something like Orlo's algae in our bioavailable form, that polar lipid form, for up to three times better absorption, even than fish oil. So, bioavailability is important. And with Orlo, what we're working to do is really make sure that we provide nutrients in the most bioavailable form so that people get more out of them. Now, I know that there are a variety of tests that people can take to, you know, measure their health and ultimately even discover if they have some of these issues absorbing nutrients like if they have this MTHFR gene or if they are in my case I have have one representation of APOE4 which means I have an increased risk for Alzheimer's and Mental decline later in life also means that I am less capable of integrating plant-sourced omega-3s into my tissues and may even have a hard time absorbing omega-3s from something like fish oil. So enter polar lipids, part of the solution, and I'm able to manage my health that way. I'm able to take a test now and then, like this omega-3 index test, to verify my levels of omega-3s and then make adjustments from there. Is that something that you often do in your practice in patients that you're seeing through cancer diagnosis? Are you integrating those sorts of things? And is this something you tend to recommend people do whether or not they're actively working with a physician in these ways?
0: Yes. Testing is a really good next step in the discussion. So the first thing is, is that testing availability now compared to 10 years ago and certainly 20 or 30 years ago is light years different. There are still test platforms that are not the greatest in coming up with the right answer for particular nutrients, et cetera. But when it comes to things such as lipids, so the the fat things, the omega, whether it's omega check or omega balance or those sort of things that you can do, we do use those a lot with people. Reason being, as you mentioned, there's a lot of variation in our natural ability to absorb from the food and the supplements we get. And it's really nice to see what's my body doing with those once it actually puts them in the cell membranes, et cetera. So you can use it, and I think this is what you were getting to, is you can use it as a benchmark and then say, okay, what do I need to do to optimize that if it's not optimal? In preventive situations, so let's say we don't have a big illness going on, the first thing I'll usually do with people is have them take a look at what's going into their body first. So if we can optimize their not only their caloric intake and their macros and all that, but the cleanliness and you know, get high quality, high density nutrition in someone who's not otherwise ill, we might do that for three or four months and just see kind of where the changes are before we test anything, unless they really need to see how bad things are. Sometimes you do. The other level though that we use a lot now. And this is something you'd mentioned in my bio, some cancer research I did was also concurrent with that research, but not about cancer. In chronic illness, I did some research on methylation defects and the effects in the chronic illness population. That was really at the very beginning of the nutrigenomic sort of testing that we have nowadays. It was very rudimentary back then. What we found, just short answer, Methyl cycle defects are much more highly represented in chronically ill people, like a lot of other defects are. The nice thing with those is most of them can be worked with in a way where you nutritionally can take in things that sort of go around the defect, and then it's really a non-issue. So another thing we do beyond just looking at the nutrition and maybe testing levels, et cetera, is in people maybe with big family histories of trouble or early onset of disease, we'll look at a nutrigenomic profile that will really look at things. So the famous one is MTHFR and methylation, but there's many other related things. And now, thankfully, with computers and interpretation software, you don't have to be a biochemist to figure out what it all means, which is our problem originally. So I, I'm a recovering biochemistry and pharmacology teacher. So that's why I got involved in that It back before we had the computer software. I remember, yeah, I, I'm trying to get over it. <laughs> you know, so I could look at it and say, oh, well, these code for these enzymes, you know, what nutrients need to go there. And so things that we saw even way back then in the early research were as soon as we treated people with the nutrients that were the best for their body, they would get over a lot of sort of the inertia holding them back from healing. So the nutrigenomic things can be very useful also. So your general nutrition, there's the nutrigenomics. And then there's what we had talked about earlier. Beyond toxicities, there's just these foods just aren't good for me as a person. Big time allergy, which you usually know about, or maybe just a sensitivity. And sometimes we know you can narrow it down to, gee, when I eat broccoli or I get very ill. And sometimes we need to test those things because maybe our body's just so confused. (laughs) So those are the levels of testing, usually on the nutritional end of things that I like to do, depending on kind of where the person is. Like I say, if they're already sick or if they got big family histories of a lot of stuff earlier is better to look into those things. Certainly, like in your case now, and see, this is something we wouldn't have been able to test not that long ago. If you have an ApoE, one or two alleles there, you know, especially in the four series associated with lots of fat metabolism issues, et cetera, you can do many things that are proactive, as you were mentioning, so you don't develop all those problems. Well, if I look and I see mom and maybe grandpa and A couple others all had kind of early onset of cardiovascular problems or dementia. Even if you're 20 years old, I'm going to say, let's look at these things. Because if we start to make nutritional augments when you're 20, your body, again, this is an epigenetic signal. If I don't turn it on all the time with the diet that's not appropriate for me, I can keep it quiet. I don't have to go the road grandpa went or whatever. And so those things are very, very useful and helpful. I really do see, and again, it wasn't always available in the forms there, the omega balance testing, which comes in different names and flavors. I really think those are quite important because the omega balance in our cells is predicate for so many other really good things that can go on if it's working correctly.
1: Well, and I'll share with our audience at this time too, that we have some good news for anybody interested in testing your levels. Orlo Nutrition is actually providing a test with new subscribers to our Tested by You program. And this is a cost that we're absorbing. Each of these tests costs $50. And so when you subscribe to Tested by You, we give you one kit to check your baseline and then one more kit after four months of supplementation so you can see where you're at and then make adjustments from there as necessary. Now, I made a shift personally to not consuming fish after being an avid fish consumer for a long, long time. And you know, I love fish. I love eating it. But I also like the fish that is higher on the food chain most. And I don't necessarily want to get all the added toxins into my system if I can help it now in my mid-40s. And I also understand that things like mercury can be degenerative to your brain. And so I know I'm ApoE4 now, so what do I do, right? So I have made the choice to just shift my consumption from the sea to the algae that we produce with Orlo. And so after four months of being on this new plan where I'm taking just two soft gels of our omega-3 every day, I tested myself without consuming fish. And so it was a new baseline for me because I went from consuming fish a lot and supplementing to only having this. Ideal is 8% or better. I tested at 637 rounded up 6.4, still not ideal or perfect. So I therefore increase my dosage to three soft gels a day. And I'm going to check again after four months. And so I can walk this path to becoming more plant-based than I was before, mindful yet of consuming my omega-3s, understanding I'm not getting enough from plant sources. And I also have this APOE4 piece to contend with. So my hope is that at the end of the four months, I'll come back and say I'm over that 8% threshold. I plan to share the results on this podcast and you guys can be with me on that journey too. We've seen preliminary results from some of our audience. We have them as anonymized data, so we never see what their names are or anything like that but we'll be able to see too the before and after and then report on that as well. So it's exciting. And $100 worth of tests with a subscription that's less than a dollar a day. You're still getting a savings of 15%. And if you use the code NWC5, you'll even get a bonus additional five discount to get a full 20 off on your first order. So I'll provide that as well at the close of the show. Thank you so much. So let's go ahead and... Think a little bit more deeply now about what we can do from this muscle to brain perspective, because we've talked a little bit about the brain and about the attitude and having more of a positive take on what your regimen might do for you, or even just how that can affect things like nutrient absorption. I know there's some science to say that people, if they eat stressed, don't get the same nutrition out of their food. So pausing and enjoying the food and, and doing so can actually mean you, you get more out of it. What is your take on that?
0: I think, although to make things sound pretty and be reductionistic, it's like there's these three pillars, but everything affects everything else. The way that your body and your nervous system are set up to take you from being active to being calm and doing things like digesting and absorbing your food and your nutrients is very elegant. It's very complex. But the bottom line is you can't have optimal digestion and absorption if you are also participating in what we might call the more active, stressful side of life. So, If your nervous system is focusing on, we all have lives and all sorts of things happen and or you're at work or you're trying to eat while you're working and doing other things, your nervous system has to choose kind of one direction or the other. So, the part of your nervous system, parasympathetic part, that allows you maximum digestion, absorption of nutrients, you have to be somewhat calm. You have to be physically centered and calm and you have to, at, at all possible costs, not be focusing mentally on many stressful events. Now, there's times when this is impossible, but what you need to remember is that, you know, it's always the total sum at the end of the day. It's not my perfect every time. The more I can be centered, not moving around, not driving while I'm eating, not talking and having difficult conversations or arguments while I'm eating, the more centered I am, the more I'm just thinking about enjoying being with who I'm eating with and my food and everything, the better my nervous system can turn all the wonderful digestive processes on. So that's another thing where it's sort of like, look at, okay, I ate this amount of food, But if I eat this amount of food today and I was super stressed and doing all sorts of stuff that weren't good for my parasympathetic activity and then tomorrow I eat the same stuff, but my parasympathetic activity is fully active, I'm going to get totally different amounts of nutrients out of the same food. Again, that kind of goes back to that, you know, food's important, but also what we're doing here with our brain and our mind body, very, very important as a connection.
1: I'd often thought about the fact that we have all this research on the French paradox. And I've lived in France. I did archaeology digs there and I spent a good chunk of my 20s in France. And what I saw was that the culture was so different that the stress that people deal with in the day-to-day is quite less. And it's very common to still take two-hour lunches. And so... This is a big break in the middle of your day. Over a two-hour lunch, you can take your time. You can order the food that you want. You can have a good conversation. You can take a walk after you've eaten, and then you can get back into your day. But We've so moved away from that type of a lifestyle here in the United States that it's no wonder to me that we would also both get less from our food, less nutrition from the food we eat, perhaps remain more hungry, therefore, because we're not getting the same nutrition. Therefore, we eat more even when we consume the same foods. And we tend to go to things that are edible on the go because we don't have the two hours in the middle of the day to spend in preparation and digestion of that food. So you know, yes, they eat more vitamin K two with their brie cheese, and yes, they consume more polyphenols perhaps with their red wine. But it's those are parts of an equation that are actually quite different. And what we see is that with shifts in the culture in France, in big cities, that they're getting closer to our heart disease levels too. Perhaps the stress equation is part of that as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's never one thing. But I think stress eating, it's as bad for you as toxic food or any other thing, because our bodies just are not made to digest and absorb under those conditions. So it's a very, very important thing.
1: So I think what I'm taking away from today's discussion is multiple fold. One is that food in the right amounts and the right balance can be nourishing, but that we should avoid the poisons and the poisons can even mean overconsumption of something that triggers our system. Now that could be if we're eating too much on the go food, then maybe we're getting too many processed carbohydrates and sugars. Maybe we're getting way too much salt. I find that I'm sensitive to salt. I don't like a lot of it. And then a few weeks ago, I had mussels for dinner that were very salty. And the next day I woke up and my feet hurt. And my feet hurt really bad. And then I look up some research. I'm like, oh, I perhaps have like the underpinnings of gout here. And this salty seafood muscles, which, you know, yes, they are a seafood, but they're low in omega-3s. They are not like a very great source of that type of nutrition they triggered my body in a way that I didn't anticipate. And I'm just now emerging from that after really reducing my consumption of salt in other ways and drinking a lot more water and then consuming some foods like cherries to help drop my acid levels so that the pain in my feet subsides. But it was astounding how quickly that came up. And perhaps that's also genetic related, but maybe there was something to me not liking super salty foods all along and that I have some underlying thing that I should pay attention to there as well. So pay attention to the foods you eat, don't eat too much of certain things that may be triggering for you, see how your body responds, get physically active, which doesn't seem like it's crazy talk, like we all need to be a little bit more active, that's good. And then when we are making choices about our daily lives, that we need to allow space for ourselves to keep in a positive attitude and try to reduce stresses, focus on eating when we're eating and not five different things at the same time, work in some relaxation. I'm sure you would add restful sleep to the equation.
0: Yeah, and that the things like sleep, et cetera, go with all of those pillars. So obviously there's a huge component of sleep that's related to our mind and our neurochemistry, but also there's a huge amount of appropriate and also just good quality sleep that's related to your muscles being active as well and also related to the food you're taking in you know so it's really like sleep is sort of like the cap at the end of the day on all those things to reset you for the next day and so i think that as i say we're being a little reductionistic to divide them up because they all talk to each other the better we can do in those areas the better our body will respond no matter what's wrong with us
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today. I would like to know if you have any closing thoughts you'd like to bring to our audience, or if there's a question I haven't asked that you'd like to address, we could ask and answer it.
0: Well, these topics, of course, we could talk about for days because there's so many facets to it. I think one theme that we've both gotten at, but I just want to take a moment, maybe in a parasympathetic way, restate it. And that is that your body will often... Try very hard to tell you something that either you should do or you shouldn't do. And when it comes to food, a lot of times the cleaner our diet gets and the healthier we are, the quicker those messages come in. So, for example, if let's say you had an extremely high toxic diet, over caloric intake, all those things, you might not notice that connection to eating muscles because it would be in the mix of all the other junk that's going on. Right. So It's really, really good, you know, kind of goes along with calming down eating and noticing what you're eating and liking it and all that, but also saying, gee, every time I have these things, something's not right about it. And a lot of times maybe do some cause and effect, remove some things and say, gee, I do feel better. It can be at any level. I mean, I remember long time ago, let's say, but you know, before I was so into all these things, getting so tired on my commute home. And then realizing that it was actually what I was eating for lunch, you know, I mean, it'd be okay. And then about the commute home, I just, it's like, I don't need to go to sleep, but I'm driving.
1: You were on the other side of that glucose. Bike.
0: And so I started to look, <laughs> and then I started to do some biofeedback with checking my blood sugar. And I thought, oh, well, dummy, yes, it's you're eating the wrong way. Just things like that. You know, your body really is trying to talk to you. And what I'll tell patients is that our body speaks a very elegant language, but it doesn't use words. It uses feelings and symptoms and shifts in the way that we feel, and that could be gut things, but it could also be, I'm I'm more anxious, or I'm more tired, or I'm achy, or whatever. So I really think that listening to our body is very, very important. And you both brought that up, but it's body really can guide you through a whole bunch of things. And I think the other thing is it's really easy to kind of get down and negative thinking about, gosh, we do live in a toxic world and it's way more toxic than even a hundred years ago. And we've got these food issues and all that, but there's so many things. We all have our own agency and there's so many things we can do just to do a little bit better every day with that. Anything you do will be positive and will be helpful. So just trying to do a little bit better every day, trying to change your habits, et cetera, can't happen overnight for most people, but everybody can do it. So I think I would like to end on on a positive note that way.
1: Well, thank you so much for that. I certainly have appreciated it. And I think the story that we've told today has hopefully helped people to get a greater understanding of how they can approach their long-term health care, whether that be a disease they're confronting or just working to ratchet up and optimize their everyday health. So... Thank you so much for joining me
0: today. Thank you very much.
1: To find out more about Dr. Paul Anderson, visit Dr. A now, that's D-R-A-N-O-W.com and check out his podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's called Medicine and Health with Dr. Paul. I'll be sure to include links to both with show notes and in our expanded blog at orlonutrition.com. So I wanna remind everyone to again today, I picked up this book. We have it here, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. If you've ever confronted cancer, or have anybody in your life who has, I encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's written in story format. So you really do get to dive deeply into two very different perspectives of what it is like to confront a debilitating disease like that and how you might best guide somebody who's also handling those challenges. Now, I did mention as well during this episode that we're running this Tested by You campaign where you can qualify to get two tests of the Omega-3 Index Kit. This is a third-party test. It's simple to take. It's a simple blood spot analysis. You just register for the kit online. You put your little blood spot on the card, mail it in, and in 10 days or less, you're going to receive your results via email. And then again, after your fourth month, you'll receive a second test so you can verify what your supplementation has done for you from baseline to after four months, and then make any other adjustments from there to manage your health that you need to. Use the code NWC5 at checkout for this particular Tested by You program, and you'll get an extra 5% off at checkout. This is a $100 value for the test. So it's a really incredible resource. If you've ever thought about, I need to supplement with omega-3s, there's really no reason to delay. Now, I want to thank all of you for joining me and for this lively discussion. I hope you'll join me as I say my parting words and take a sip of my coffee here's to your health.
0: Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.